0: and take your Bibles and turn with me to the Book of Ruth for one last time in our sermon series through the Book of Ruth. It has been an amazing series. Uh, originally it was supposed to be shorter and then I believe it ended up being 13 weeks long because we just had to keep slowing down to dive into the beauty of this book. And we, we took a lot of snapshots along the way. There's a lot of memories from our trip through this book and What I wanted to do this morning is just kind of look back on all the memories that we've made, all the lessons that we've learned, even what Marty was sharing this morning of how we go through a book, a narrative in the Scriptures. We need to see a a number of different things from an individual understanding of lessons learned from Boaz, from Ruth, from Naomi, and and how they lived life. But we can't just leave it there in some moralistic way of studying the Bible. We We need to pull back. We actually need to start with the awe and the grandeur of God. And, and we did that when we began our study in the book of Ruth. We, we talked about eight different reasons why we were going to study this book. Number one was that Ruth was God's word. Number two, it's a very powerful story. Number three, it teaches us how to interpret narratives. Number four, we all experience difficulties and delights. Number five, Ruth shows us the comforting doctrine of God's providence. Number six, the beauty of love and romance. Number seven, biblical manhood and womanhood and the roles therein. And then number eight, the glory of Jesus, our Redeemer. So that was kind of the intro to the whole book. And and if you weren't able to be with us for the entirety of the book of Ruth, it's all online. I would encourage you to listen because this morning we're not gonna be diving into the text as much as we normally do on a Sunday morning because we've already done that together. I wanna kind of fly by. I remember we had a, we had a visitor the first Sunday when we did our introductory work in the book of Ruth. And so I read the whole book of Ruth. I walked through each of the 8 points. We didn't do much diving into the scriptures, and that was the sermon. And I remember a dear a dear brother, he doesn't go to our church because he's not from around here, but a dear brother said to me, "Man, is that the way you normally preach? Cuz you did all of Ruth in one sermon." And I said, "No, no, it's going to be like 12 sermons. Don't worry." And so if you have the feeling the same way on the back end, we're just going to take a look at all the lessons that we've learned, and you feel, I think I've missed something here. You have missed something. The good news is they're all online. You can go to our website. You can download the sermons. I would encourage you to do that, even if you were here for the majority of the sermon series, but you missed one or two sermons. Go online, uh, download them, listen to them, because it was truly uh, an awesome, I know we throw that word around, but it was an awesome time. It was an awe-filled time in the study of the book of Ruth. We've had a, an amazing time just glorying in the beauty of God's word. And, and so to, to bookend the eight lessons that we were looking at at the very beginning, I want to give us eight lessons looking back, eight lessons learned through the book of Ruth, eight lessons that just kind of have stood out to me. We've learned a lot of lessons, a lot more than just eight. And even as we go through them, you'll see there's a lot of sub points to all of them. But we've learned So many things. When God's teaching us one thing, he's doing a billion things in our world and in our church family. But I just want to highlight eight of them. We'll go through a number of these quickly and then I want to camp on the last two uh, and then respond through song to everything that we've learned. So let me ask God's blessing on our time and then we'll dive in together. Father, thank you for your word, the entirety of it, that we have not been left to our own understanding, to our own advice, our own counsel, our own opinions, but we have a God who has revealed himself to us. And you've revealed yourself to us in a book, and sometimes it's just you speaking and telling us what to do. And sometimes it's you speaking and giving us a story, and we have to find by implication what you're telling us about yourself, what you're telling us about who we are, what you're telling us about how we live in light of who you are. And we have had the privilege of studying this precious book together. Thank you for Ruth, the book, and Ruth, the person. Thank you for Boaz. Thank you for Naomi. Thank you for Elimelech and Malon and Kilion. Thank you for Obed, a precious little baby that's sitting on Naomi's lap. God, thank you for Poloni Almoni in the middle of chapter 4, that Remains nameless. Mr. So-and-so. Thank you for the workers that listened to Boaz as he told them, leave food behind and don't touch this woman. Take care of her. Thank you for the easy things to see in the book of Ruth. Thank you for the crazy things like going at the middle of the night like a ninja to, to lay at the feet of a man. What, what is going on there? Thank you for your word that is never boring It's majestic. And I pray that we would exalt your word this morning, but in exalting your word, we would exalt Christ who is the word made flesh. We pray it all in his name. Amen. The first lesson that just stood out to me in our time in Ruth is number one, just the beauty of God's word. The beauty. Of God's word, I have the privilege of teaching 10th graders. I've taught from the elementary school level, all the way to uh, seniors in high school, and all from elementary to seniors in high school, no matter what age you are, even if you're older than that, all of my students have at one point said something to the effect in every age group of "I don't like reading the Bible because it's boring. I don't like reading the Bible because it's boring. And I just say, respectfully, I don't think you're reading the Bible correctly because the Bible is not boring. If you think the Bible's boring, something's wrong with your reading of it, not with the Bible. There's so much glory in this precious little book, in the the book as a whole. The Bible as a whole, but in Ruth. Just a couple reminders. Remember the way it opened. Five verses to describe over a decade of information and then slowing down for the remainder of the book to give us less than a year's worth of time and then speeding up in one verse to give us over nine months of things happening. It's just the beauty of, hey, we're going to give you a snapshot here, then we're going to slow down and simmer for a couple, uh, couple years in the middle of uh, this amazing, these chapters in the middle, and then we're going to speed up again and finish the story out. I loved the way that the 10 years of barrenness at the very beginning of the book Bookend, the 10 years of barrenness with Ruth and Malon. Bookend at the end. The author brings back 10 names, 10 generations. That's not coincidence. That's beauty in writing. How the word baby is used at the beginning. Uh, Yeldim, the, the, the sons, Melon and Kilion of Naomi. My Yeladim have passed away. My babies have died. And then at the very end, God has given her a little Yeldim, or a Yalid, a little baby that's sitting on her lap. The Polonie Almoni. I just love Polonie. I'll never forget Mr. Poloni Almoni, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. What's-His-Face. He doesn't have a name. We didn't get to spend a lot of time on that issue, but if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 7 through 10 on the issue of leveret marriage, if somebody does not choose to provide for their family and does not marry that person who is in need, who is a widow and does not care for her and take care of her kids and give her kids. If somebody refuses to do that in Deuteronomy 25, you are allowed to take their sandal off of their feet. The woman who you are refusing is allowed to take the sandal off your feet, spit in his face, say, may these things be done to you forever. And then all of Israel says, may this man's name be changed forevermore to he has no sandal. Which, he has no sandal, doesn't mean much, but if we understand Ruth, we understand what was happening, he has no place to call home, he has no inheritance, he has no land, he has no name, he has no nothing. And I think the author of Ruth is going, yeah, this guy has rejected the offer to be a kinsman-redeemer, so Deuteronomy 25 says we should keep him nameless, let's leave him nameless, Mr. So-and-so. And the irony of that, He said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to marry Ruth. I don't want to take care of Naomi because I want to keep my name. I want to keep my inheritance. And he goes nameless. And Boaz says, I'll marry Ruth and I'll lose my name. I'll lose my inheritance. I'm fine with that. And he's the one who will remember his name forevermore. All the cliffhangers that happen in the book of Ruth. It seems like things just will never finally conclude. The beauty, I just, I loved chapter two when it opened. And the author told us, hey, you need to know who this guy named Boaz is. He's related to Elimelech. He can be a kinsman and redeemer. Just hold on to that information. And we knew things that Ruth and Naomi did not know. And so when Ruth comes back home, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, when Ruth comes back home and has all of this food, and Naomi says, who's the guy? Ruth knows who the guy is. But does not know how he is a kinsman redeemer and related to Naomi. Naomi knows who Boaz is, but doesn't know that's the guy. But we do. We're going, we know, we know, we know. This is amazing. And slowly but surely, Ruth answers. It's the last word in that sentence. That's not coincidence. I hung out with this guy. He has a great field, big house, lots of servants, uh, very kind, very nice man. Um, what was his name? Uh, Boaz. And Naomi just instantly, oh my word, it's Boaz. That's beauty in writing. The Bible's amazing and it's beautiful. Number two, not only the beauty of God's word, but the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God's word. The truthfulness. We learn the lesson of the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of God's word. The truthfulness. Uh, Remember, we talked about genealogies last week. Why are genealogies at the end of this book? There's a number of reasons why, but one of the reasons is to cement it in history. These things actually happen. You remember the illustration I gave of the missionary who went over to a, a tribe that didn't have uh, the Bible in their own language. So he translated Matthew into their own language but left out the genealogy in chapter one because he thought that's boring. Nobody needs to know that. And they said, can you finish this out? What, left, what do you have left to translate? And he translated the genealogy and they said, now we believe that Jesus is real. We thought he was a fairy tale. But now we believe he's real because you cemented him in history. History has names, it's cemented in history. It's trustworthy. It's true. You would not make this book up if you were making up a book to try and prove that Israel's awesome and worthy of our allegiance. Why? Well, David is the hero, the hero of Israel, right? He is the, the biggest, most important, most famous king in all of Israel. And his great-grandmother is a Moabite woman who defiles the entire lineage of David. A Moabite woman. You remember how the Moabites began? Moab literally means, who is my father? Who's my dad? And the reason why, if you remember, go all the way back to how the Moabites began. Lot slept with his daughters. So the offspring that he had, get this, his son is his grandson. That's strange, right? His son is his grandson and that man's name is Moab. Who's my dad? Who is this guy? And forever, if you were to ask, what does Moab mean? Who's my dad? Everybody knows where that came from and doesn't want to talk about that story. That's a a terrible black mark on our history, and yet a Moabite woman is the great-grandmother of David. That's incredible. You wouldn't make that up. Or what about Boaz's mom? Boaz's mom is Rahab, a prostitute and a Gentile in the lineage of David and ultimately in the lineage of the Messiah. You wouldn't make this up. If you're going to make up a book to try and prove Israel's amazing and pure and undefiled, you would do it that way. You wouldn't put these people in that have terrible uh, records. That's why the Bible, one of the reasons why we can prove the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. It's absolutely true. Number three, life is filled With complications and suffering. We learned this early on. Five verses. 5 It only took five verses over ten years of information crammed into five verses, losing Elimelech, losing Malon, losing Kilion. Losing all these different people. It only takes five verses to have your life completely upended. The blessing is it only takes one verse at the end to restore it all. Remember one verse, a marriage, a pregnancy, a child. One verse restores it all. But this book reminds us yet again that life is filled with suffering. It is. Remember, the majority of the psalms are lament psalms, and the, the psalms are all about how life works and a response to life. And so if the psalms are all about how life works, and the majority of psalms are lament psalms, that means the majority of life is hard. It's sorrowful. It's sorrowful. And it just takes a phone call. I was rehearsing with my kids, with my two oldest kids, if they remembered what happened the day that Tyler was in the hospital and we found out he needed heart surgery. Um, I I asked my older two, do you remember what happened? Uh, Chelsea kind of remembers that Ethan doesn't remember. We were actually there for Ethan's uh, checkup, his appointment, his two-year-old checkup. And I remember sitting, something was up with Tyler. We didn't know what, so we brought him to the doctor, and they saw him first, and I am so anti-alarmist that I thought he'll be fine. He probably has just an infection. And I was sitting, we were watching a, a movie with my kids in the doctor's office. They were little fish. They liked the fish better than the movie. And uh, I remember a nurse came from where Tyler was, a little bit more briskly than is comfortable for me, kind of, kind of walked very quickly. Hmm, that—that's strange. Picked up the phone and said, uh, "Code blue, we need an ambulance." Now I don't know what code blue means, but we need an ambulance, and we are the only people in the waiting room. And my Tyler, my precious son Tyler, is in the doctor's office. I know there's no other person that needs an ambulance here. It just takes that one phone call. And I sat my kids down. And I said, okay, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening here. Tyler's in trouble. He needs some help. He's, something's wrong with him, and we need to pray for him. And we prayed, and I said, God knows. We don't know what's going on here, but God knows. We're going to trust him. And God loves Tyler more than all of us combined. We're going to trust. But it only took one statement to have just the bottom drop out. Something's wrong. Our lives are going to be changed. What's happening? We learned that in the book of Ruth together. We also learned in the midst of those things that God does give us what we need. He gives us mercy. He gives us grace. He gives bread to a widow. He gives a king to a nation that's doing everything right in their own eyes without a king. And he gives a redeemer for a sinful world. Life is filled with complications and suffering. Number four. Life is lived in dialogue and relationships. So we've got the beauty of God's word, the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word. Life is filled with complications and suffering. And then number four, a fourth lesson. Life is lived in dialogue and relationships. Ruth, the whole book, consists of 1,260 words. 1,260 words. If you take all of the words that are dialogue, spoken uh, quotations to one another, It's only 520 words. So over half of this book is dialogue. It's conversation. Life is lived in words. That's why we we pray with the psalmist, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, The proverb that death and life are in the power of the tongue. We need to be careful how we speak because life is lived in relationships and in dialogue. And we need to be careful not only how we speak, but how we listen to dialogue. One of of my favorite lessons from this book is the way that Ruth responded to Naomi. You remember in the end of chapter one, Naomi says, I went out full and I have come back empty. I have nothing. And she says that with Ruth standing right next to her. I think all of us would probably have gotten a little offended. (laughs) Excuse me, am I nothing to you? I committed my whole life to you. I said, where you go, I will go. And where you die, I will die. I'm going to stay with you. Even through your death, I'm going to hang out and I'm going to stay in the land that you died in. But Ruth knows, you know, those are wind words, right? Those are words, like Job says, despairing words of a man are just wind. Let them go. We need to be careful how we speak. We need to be careful how we hear. Life is lived in dialogue, but it's also lived in relationships. I love what Naomi said. I went out full. She's not thinking about bread. She doesn't care about bread. She's thinking about the fullness of relationships. I had my my husband and my sons and I've come back empty. No, she's coming back to a harvest, but the food doesn't matter to her. What matters is the relationships, and at the end of the book, we have relationships being established. Number five, I love this lesson. This just stood out to me through the course of, of studying this book, especially with Boaz in view. Number five, godly character seeks the heart of the law. Remember, Boaz is a godly man. He has godly character, and godly character seeks the heart of the law, the spirit of the law. why, why do I say this? You remember we walked through what leveret marriage is and how Boaz was not doing what lever, leveret marriage was requiring, right? Leveret marriage said, if you're if you are uh, you have a brother and your brother's married to somebody and that brother dies, you need to marry that woman and provide children for her. But Boaz and Malon are not brothers. That would make Naomi Boaz's mom, and he never says, hey mom, how are you doing? Boaz did not need to, by the letter of the law, he could have absolutely said, I don't need to do what you're asking me to do. I don't need to do anything. God's word says very clearly, it needs to be a brother, and I'm not Malon's brother. I'm not obligated. We talked about that. He had no obligation to do what he was doing, and he did it anyway. Why? Because he's a godly man and godly character seeks the heart. What's the heart of the Leverett marriage law? The heart of it is make sure that people in your family are taken care of, are provided for. And he said, I don't need the law to tell me what to do. I know what it is saying to do. I know the heart of it, and I will adapt the Leverett marriage principle to live this out with someone who is in need. I loved that. We, we often get into trouble with the letter of the law, right? We often get into trouble in two ways. Number one, we get in trouble when we say, well, I don't have to do that because the Bible doesn't exactly say that. Kind of like Poloni-Almoni might have done. The Bible doesn't exactly say that. That's not levering me. I don't need to do it. I'm out. Instead of understanding what the spirit of the law is, seeking the heart of the law and going, well, I can live that out. What's the law trying to say? And we also get in trouble when we condemn other people by the letter of the law instead of seeing the heart behind their actions. When we condemn them, well, you didn't do this instead of seeing, well, I know what you were trying to do. I know what you were trying to do. Brothers and sisters, the best way to live life is by the spirit of the law, not the letter. Remember 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, the spirit gives life, but the letter kills. The letter of the law kills. It's the spirit that gives life. We see this in our Savior. Do you remember when Jesus talks to the rich young ruler? When Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler, he tells the rich young ruler, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Why does he say that? There's no law in the Bible that says we need to do that. What is he trying to do? He's trying to get to the heart of the law, the spirit of the law. And the spirit of all of the laws is, you love Jesus more than you love anything in the world. You love God more than you love anything. Jesus knew this man owned much property, so he knows that's what he loves more than God. And so he makes a law that understands the spirit. He makes a a commandment for this man to live out that gets at the heart of what's going on. So Jesus does this regularly. He gets to the heart. I love Boaz. He's just an amazing picture of a godly man who says, I don't need a law to tell me what to do. I know what the heart of the law is saying, and I'm going to live according to the spirit of the law. Number six, take prayer seriously. Number six, a sixth lesson, take prayer seriously. The main characters in the book of Ruth are always praying. It's so commonplace. It's in their conversational dialogue. And we said last week, every prayer that is prayed in the book of Ruth is answered with a yes. Every aspect of life is in this book, and there is a prayer for each and every aspect of life. Just It's a, it's a lesson to us that we should pray way more often than we do, and we should take prayer seriously. In whatever season, in whatever difficulty, in whatever blessing, in whatever triumph, we see a prayer that Naomi prays for Orpah and for Ruth. May God give you hesed. May God give you grace and love and kindness. And and in the midst of her suffering, she says that. And then we see at the very end of the book, the people praying, may God make Ruth and Boaz and their kids to be these huge pillars. So in blessing, in times of sorrow, no matter what it is, we're praying. And God always, always hears. That leads us to number seven. And this is where I wanna slow down just a little bit. So review, we've seen number one, a lesson of the beauty of God's word. Number two, the lesson of the truthfulness and trustworthiness of God's word. Number three, life is filled with complications and suffering. Number four, life is lived in dialogue and relationships. Number five, godly character seeks the heart of the law. Number six, we need to take prayer seriously. And number seven, this is lengthy, so I'll give it to you a number of times. We are unable in this life to fathom all of God's purposes in our lives. We are unable, this is a lesson that just jumps out off the page as we got to the end of the genealogy. We are unable in this life to fathom all of God's purposes in our lives. We can't see them. We can't comprehend them. We cannot fully fathom them. Why end the book with the genealogy? Because you and I are limited to one lifetime. We get one lifetime. It's over. We don't know what happens after that. But the genealogical record shows us what happened because of Naomi, because of Ruth, and because of Boaz, and so much happened. I think we tend to to feel our lives need to matter for here and now, just in this moment. Uh, Younger people, myself included in my generation, have the phrase YOLO, right? You only live once. Just make it count now. This book is telling us, no, make your life count for generations to come. Do something now that will impact people that you will never meet in this life, that will impact situations that you couldn't possibly even comprehend. Put yourself in the way of being used by God now that will change somebody else's history. We can't fathom it in this life. You won't see everything God's doing in your life in this life. It's one of the reasons why we need heaven to be eternal Because we're going to be talking about how everything that happened in our lives, we didn't see all that was actually happening. Naomi didn't even know. She never even saw what her story produced. She never even saw it. She thought the good news ended with a baby on her lap. Wow, this is amazingly kind of God. But it ended with David. She had probably passed away at that point. It ended with David, but it doesn't even end there. It ends with the Messiah. She would never have guessed that. If you would have asked her in the midst of her suffering, hey, do you know God's doing something here. Do you know what it is? She would have said, no, I don't know what God's doing. I mean, he's up to something, but I don't know what it is. But if you had laid out everything that God was going to do, don't think that that takes away the pain of the suffering, but it takes away that sense of purposelessness in the suffering. Oh, God's doing something. But there's no way Naomi would have ever been able to know that, see that, or comprehend that in her life. Many of you know the name Warren Wiersbe. As a pastor, a Bible teacher, he uh, told of the, t- of the time that he had gallbladder trouble. He had a horrific problem with his gallbladder, so he went and he got it taken out. He had a surgeon who was a Christian. His name was Dr. Lloyd Tenney. I don't know, that just is the coolest name ever. Dr. Lloyd Tenney. And he was a Christian. And after performing the surgery and everything went well, Dr. Tenney came in to sign Warren out. And Warren Wearsby said this You know, Dr. Tenney, God gave me a gallbladder, and you took it out. Did God make a mistake? The doctor just said nope and continued filling out the paperwork. So Wearsby said, If I can do without it, then why did God give it to me in the first place? And the surgeon said, So that I could send my kids to college. (laughs) Wearsby never would have thought about that. But that was the purpose of what happened. No one would ever have had that in view, but that perspective happens after the fact. The exact same thing is true about Naomi. No one would have, Naomi would never have guessed that a thousand years down the road, her story would have ended this way. So this shows us that none of us knows enough to say that God does not know what he's doing. None of us knows enough to say that God doesn't know what he's doing. None of us has enough wisdom to use the language of Paul in the book of Romans to dispute God's ways. Who can say to God, you're wrong? They're mysterious ways. They're unknown ways. But we do have enough clues in this book, in Naomi's story, to show us that God takes the common and complicated circumstances and the lives of His people, and He makes them contribute to the coming of His kingdom in this world and on into eternity. He takes normal, everyday moments, usually painful, to contribute to his grand story of redemption in this world. And you and I are involved. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I are involved in that story. So we don't want to ask, what are we going to do in this life? We want to ask, how are we working out that story? What's God doing in us to further that story? The fact that God's sovereignty works secretly and hiddenly, we don't know it, adds to its interest and its mystique, and it should also comfort us to the core. We don't know what God's doing, but we know that He's doing something, and it's amazing what He's up to. We don't know what it is, and we know that it's very subtle, most often of the time. We talked about this in one of our sermons. Most often, God does not work like he does in the book of Exodus, parting the Red Sea, showing us this is what's happening. I love when God works that way, and I would prefer that he worked that way all the time. But usually it's just subtle. You're out of bread, and you need to go somewhere else, and God does something miraculous through that. We need to marvel in those mundane moments. I don't think that we will ever forget the phrase, it just so happened. It just so happened that Ruth was in the field of Boaz. She just picked it. It just so happened. And in the mundane choice of choosing a field, God worked out his plan of redemption. So marvel in those mundane moments. As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, Old Testament narrative, Old Testament stories use history to help us understand theology. And the beauty of the history in the book of Ruth helped us understand theology. John Piper says it this way, "'Thus, in spite of its brevity "'and apparent insignificance, "'the book of Ruth presents "'one of the most comforting "'and encouraging messages "'of the Old Testament. "'This message is one of of reassurance "'that when we are tempted like Naomi "'to feel forsaken by God, "'to feel that He doesn't care, "'He is nevertheless still in control "'and will work out His purposes. "'This book encourages its readers "'not to panic during dark times "'when God seems far away, "'but to wait expectantly.'" and to keep faith in Him. So we learned that we are unable in this life to fathom all of the purposes that God has for us in our lives. But we know, as the hymn writer says, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to Thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain that morn shall tearless be. One day it's coming when we're going to see all of the purposes that God had. We're not going to see him in this life. But we can cling to the hope that God is working. He is sovereign, and he's working for our greatest joy. That leads us to the last point, number eight. Not only number seven are we unable in this life to fathom all of God's purposes, but number eight, we saw and we learned the lesson of the glory of God's grace in redemption. Number eight, and finally concluding this whole book, the glory of God's grace in redemption. The whole point of this book is redemption. 21 times in the book we have seen the word redeem. Five times in chapter four alone. If you have your Bibles, uh, chapter four, verse six, the closest relative, that's just kinsman, redeemer, so there's one, said, I cannot redeem it. There's two. By myself, because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it, number three, for yourself, so that you may have the right of redemption, number four, because I can't redeem it, number five. Five times in one verse, we have the word redeem or redemption. Seven times in that conversation on the threshing floor. Will you redeem? I will redeem. I will be a redeemer. You are my redeemer. Redemption is the theme of this book, but it's not just about a family being redeemed. It's not just about Naomi and Ruth being redeemed. It's about all of us being redeemed. In 1912, a pastor by the name of John Henry Jowett gave a lecture on preaching, and he said this about a great preacher or about any believer who has eyes to see the greatness and glory of God. He says this, quote, A great preacher is one who is able to look at the horizon rather than at an enclosed field or a local landscape. He has a marvelous way of connecting every subject with eternity past and with eternity to come. It's as though you were looking at a bit of carved wood in a Swiss village window and you lifted your eyes and you saw the forest where the wood was nourished and higher still the everlasting snows. Yes, that was the way of all the preachers and he mentions a number of different preachers that that were amazing at doing what they did in preaching. Spurgeon, a number of preachers that you would know. They were always willing to stop at the village window but they always linked the streets with the heights and sent your souls, your souls roaming over the eternal hills of God. And that's what the book of Ruth does. The author of Ruth, if the story just ended in a little Judean village with an old grandmother hugging a new grandson, it would not be big enough. There's more, and the author doesn't leave the story there. He lifts his eyes and ours as well to the forest, to the mountains, and to the snow-capped hills of redemptive history. He shows us David's family tree. We find out that the purpose of Ruth wasn't just for Ruth and it wasn't just for Naomi or for Boaz or even for their son or even for David or even for all of Israel. It was for us. It was the Messiah being sent through this lineage. The purpose of Ruth includes us. We are in this book and we see the end of the matter. Finally, when we get to the end of the book, We see no immigration to Moab, no return of Ruth, no Ruth, no marriage to Boaz, no marriage to Boaz, no Obed, no Obed, no Jesse, no Jesse, no David, no David, no Messiah. And we have no hope for salvation if we don't have a Messiah. So as we wrap up this book, there's one word that should be emblazoned on your mind, and it's the word redemption. Redemption. Isaiah 44, verse 22, I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist return to me because I have redeemed you. This story of redemption was seen in the background of a love story, but it's God's plan of redemption that this story is focusing on. Boaz is a redeemer, but he's just saving one family. God's redeemer was sent, Jesus Christ, to redeem all of those who would trust in him. And so even in that, we see Boaz and we see almost a type of who Jesus was going to be. Just let me give you four similarities between Boaz and Jesus. Number one, The kinsman redeemer had to be a a relative. You had to be a relative of that bride that you were going to marry. You had to be related in some way, shape, or form. So too, Jesus became our relative. He became a member of the human race. He lived our lives. He walked in our sandals. John 14. the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Not only did the kinsman redeemer have to be related but the kinsman ultimately had to choose on his own, and Boaz did that, right? He was not obligated. He voluntarily chose to give of his life to do this. He wasn't forced. He was compelled by love. John 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I lay down my life. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down for my people. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, He is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of God. He said, I, I love to go redeem my people. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He willingly humbled himself and obeyed, and in doing that, redeemed us. Number three, a third connection between Boaz and Jesus. The Redeemer had to be capable of paying the redemption price. You couldn't redeem somebody if you couldn't pay for them so too Jesus paid the ultimate price. He says at the cross, John 19, verse 30, it is finished, it's paid in full. I've paid every single debt that you owe. Nothing left for you to do. Colossians chapter two, verse 14, he's canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Ephesians chapter one verse seven, "In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace." First Corinthians chapter six verse 20 uses this redemption language. "You have been bought with a price. You're not your own. Therefore glorify God with your body." And finally, number four, the, the fourth connection between Boaz and Jesus. The provision for the bride had to be comprehensive. You became the husband and you changed her status and you fulfilled every need that she had and it had to be comprehensive. Listen to what happened to Boaz and Ruth and listen to what happened to you and to me. Ruth went from being an alien to being accepted, a stranger to a friend, an outcast to a child, a bride, being lost to being redeemed, being a beggar to being a bride. And you and I can throw in for ourselves, turned from sinner to saint. Christ is our Redeemer. He redeems us from the curse of the law. He redeems us from a sinful past. That's why I love that we have the story of Perez in there, the story of uh, Rahab, the story of Ruth as a Moabite woman. He redeems people with the past. And the whole point of the ending of the book of Ruth, and therefore the whole of Ruth, is that the Messiah came through the lineage of Ruth. Everything that happened was for the purpose of bringing about the Messiah. The Messiah. In Genesis 3, chapter 15, or chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that a Redeemer was going to come. I'm going to send a snake crusher to kill the serpent and redeem humanity. And he's going to be human. That's all we knew. Genesis 12, it narrows it down. The Redeemer's going to come through the line of Abraham and his offspring. Still pretty big options of who could do the redeeming. Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, narrowed it down to the lineage of Judah. And that's why Perez is mentioned, because he is the son of Judah. The Messiah is connected to Ruth and to us as well. It's amazing. There's so many lessons here. But the bottom line is we need to step back and see the grandeur of the glory of God's grace of redemption on display. He will stop at nothing to redeem you. He won't let anything get in the way. He will stop at nothing to redeem you. There has to be a long line in heaven just waiting to talk with Ruth and Naomi, just waiting and wanting to hear them share their story firsthand about all the twists and turns along the way. And for us, as for them, we will all live happily ever after. And normally you end the story with the words, the end. But for us, there will never be a the end. Our happily ever after will never end, just like Boaz, just like Ruth, just like Naomi. John Piper says it this way, at one level, the message of the book of Ruth is that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska, but a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. There are rock slides and precipices and darkness and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backward in order to go forward. But all along the hazardous twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that tell you the best is yet to come. Taken as a whole, the story of Ruth is one of those signs. It is written to give us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. They do not lead off of a cliff. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy. So 3,100 years ago, in a little town called Bethlehem, God wove three lives together in order to bring about yours and my salvation. It all began with suffering and despair and loss. It ended in romantic, selfless love, provision and joy and redemption, not just for the characters involved, but for you and for me as well. And in the middle, it all started in motion simply because Ruth just so happened, just by chance, as luck would have it, to find herself in the fields of Boaz. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing study, so many lessons learned, and we want to cement those lessons to our mind and our heart now as we respond in song. We don't want to forget what you have taught us. You have taught us so much that we stand in awe of. We want to be reminded as we sing of your sovereignty, of your goodness, of your love, and of your gracious redemption. So teach us now, even as we sing scripture, maybe go back through the lessons that we've learned and be encouraged as we trust in a good and sovereign God.